Good morning. And uh, morning, Mike. Good morning to you. It's very early morning too. It's 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 horrendous. It is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Graham. <laughs> nearly forgot your name there. Which is very <laughs> Graham, that's funny. Good. Well, we are all um, ready to go for another one of these um, sessions on God. But we've got various questions. The questions are piling in from all over the place. Um, and uh, we've got several quite, kind of interesting ones coming up. Um, a lot of boring ones, obviously. Thank <laughs> you for those. Keep them coming. <laughs> that's right. But uh, before we do that, are you are you all right, Mike? Are you in good form? Yeah, I'm. I'm well, my form is is you know working on that in the gym. But but I'm. Do you go to the gym? I do go to the gym. Yes, I. I How often do you go to the gym? Well, not as often as would make any difference really to the form. <laughs> um, but I, I aim at three times a week, and I usually manage two. And this week it's going to be one. So um, oh, very it's kind of with these chocolate biscuits in front of us, it's going to be. Return to flat. Yeah, but you can I eat chocolate biscuits thinking, well, at least I'm going to go to the gym later on. That'll be better for it, don't you? That's exactly. right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Stop talking about the gym and let's do an ad for your book, Graham, shall we? That's a, a very new good book idea. called Spiritual Fitness by Graham Tomlin. Christian character in a consumer culture. Highly to be recommended. Using the gym as a metaphor for the church. A consumer culture. Oh, no, well, the, no church. the church. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> not a consumer culture. <laughs> Although, actually, when the cat fits. Now you come to mention it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It's just come out from uh, Continuum Publishers. And uh, it's £8.99 in all reputable... Well, I'm not sure all reputable bookshops, but some reputable bookshops. Um, so, yeah, well, thank you for that little mention. That, that wasn't um, planned that way. <laughs> but it was anyway. Well, today, um, our first question is um, this one... Here, it's quite, it's quite a, um, maybe a complicated one, but it's, um, I think, quite interesting. And um, it's along these lines. It says that, uh, the email says, My understanding is that the God of the Bible is made up of the person of Christ the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And that since eternity past, they have been in relationship and communion and so on. So it's talking about the Trinity. Okay? Um, so the Trinity, by definition, it says, cannot be separated. Um, if they were separated, they would they would not be in constant communion with each other. Um, God would change, and so on. So the Trinity cannot be separated. Uh, but uh, when we think of the cross, we often hear it said that um, Jesus was separated from the Father. And of course, I guess that has in mind the cry from the cross where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And um, there's a sense that the, the, the Jesus is separated from the Father at that moment. And so the question is, uh, how can that be true and the Trinity still remain one unity? Um, Or as the the questioner puts it, uh, how can Jesus have died and been separated from God and at the same time God still exists and remain God during that period? And they say they're looking forward to our answer. Just slightly ominous. <laughs> <laughs> so are we. <laughs> so who wants to kick off with this one? Well, Mike, I will. Go on then. It, it seems to me that the instinct of the question is exactly right. Um, that it's utterly essential that we hold to the indivisibility of God. That, that the Trinity, the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have for each other is the most secure thing that is. Uh, it is the one fact that will hold more than any other you know you can split the molecule you can split the atom you may be able to split the quark for all I know um, but you can't split this uh, this is what holds everything together everything else together um, so I think the instinct of the question is completely right 
Um, which, of course, then makes the question all the more intense. What happens with the cry of dereliction? What is going on with that sense of distance between the Son and Father um, on, the, on the cross? And the only kind of way I have to uh, think of it, I suppose, is the analogy of um, a marriage. If you have a marriage, if a couple have a row, um, there's a real distance between them during that time and until it's made up. Um, but they're still married. They still love each other. It's just that there's a dis- relational distance within uh, a secure commitment. Uh, and it seems to me that that's not a good analogy, but it's... Because presumably the father and the son have not had a row at this point. They, well, not quite, but it's not far off that if there's a sense of the son mm-hmm. bearing uh, guilt. Right. Yeah. And our, our guilt in that, that, then that does create relational distance. Yeah. Um, so it's not uh, as bad an analogy as uh-huh. some. <laughs> I think um, the problem is that um, that anything that makes you think in those kind of terms is making you think about the psychology of God in a way that I don't think the Gospels or the Bible as a whole, on the whole, encourages you to do. So I think that I mean I, I agree with your theological point about the security of the love of God. That's one of the absolutely non. Um, non-negotiable, unchangeable beliefs of, of, our, of our Christianity that God is love in himself and mm-hmm. in relation um, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But I think the other um, really important thing that comes out about this question is, is the cost of sin. Mm. And if a possible working definition of sin is what separates us from God and if what is happening on the cross is that the Son is bearing the weight of our sin then we actually see in operation the effect of our sin, that it can actually mm. separate, yeah. um, apparently, God from God. Mm. Um, and, I, and in a way, I prefer to concentrate on, on that rather than what it feels like <laughs> um, for the Father and the Son. We're actually seeing the cost of sin. The, the two are kind of related, aren't they? Because if it doesn't feel anything, then there's not much cost. Um, it seems to me, I, don't, I, I know what you mean by saying that we've got to be careful about um, the psychology of God because we don't have a lot to go on other mm. than ourselves but on the other hand there are ways in which the Gospels do invite us to do that there's Jesus weeping uh, there is talk of the Holy Spirit being grieved um, that there is at least some sense that our emotional makeup is has some kind of component within it is grounded in something Mm. we are in the image of God and and it's not that we have in our emotions a capacity of which God is incapable Um, and and that seems to me to be a way of saying that the cost was profound for Mm. God Um, okay yes I'll go with that (laughs) in that way those two things come together don't they because there's a sense of a deep cost and and, and pain brought by sin Mm. Um, which emphasises that, which is the point you're making, Jane. <coughs> but also, I guess it's, it's, it's a sense of that that is not—it's not like a kind of mechanical thing for God. Um, it's sort of, almost like a sort of accounting thing where He sort of, you know, tots up the sins and then sort of ticks the box and I think, pays I them think off. But this is something that actually affects the heart of God in a very profound way. And I think what's what's exciting about this is that there is a taking up, therefore, 
not only of our sin, but also of our brokenness and our sense that the whole thing is falling apart, into the one thing that doesn't fall apart, mm. uh, which is the love of God. Mm. And there's a holding of that which otherwise is unheld mm. and fragmentary and, and mm. flying apart. Mm. Uh, and, and that is what can, is the healing thing. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense that when it comes into contact with um, the love of God, it's transformed mm. in some way. Yeah. It's yeah. not just kind of... Bang. And that might be a point at which one wants to talk about the Holy Spirit, mightn't it, in relation to the cross? Because I think, again, mm. the temptation, because we want to sort of dramatise it in pictorial ways that our brains can cope with, is to concentrate on that relationship between Father and Son. Mm. But if the Western tradition is, is right to call the Holy Spirit the bond of love, the thing that holds yep. love together, yep. this is a point at which very profoundly one might wish to speak about the continuing active holding work mm. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, <coughs> the Spirit is the one who binds together the Trinity. And now, I mean, could, could you use that image of, of, if you like, if the Father and the Son are, I mean, to use your initial analogy, Mike, um, the relationship being distant or strained or whatever. <laughs> um, the Spirit is the one who holds them together. That the flame in the flaming row. <laughs> I mean, I, I do see the, the usefulness of that analogy, but I also always um, want to say in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity that one of the things the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us is that we don't really have the language to talk about God. We, none of us actually know quite what we mean by saying God is three and one. We so Augustine's us thing about, you know, we say three because we don't want to say nothing at all. Yes. Yeah. And we say one, but we not with any kind of sense of unity that we yeah. actually at the moment experience. So we may long for it. Yeah. So I think you, you both want to use analogies and remind yourself that they are very inexact yeah. when talking yeah. about the nature of God. I think... Oh, the, the interesting thing I think about this question is the, is the connection it makes between two, two doctrines which have often been seen as quite separate, which I, I think actually are profoundly related in a way, I mean, which is the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of, um, of atonement, if you like, and, and also the doctrine of the Trinity, because um, and, uh, I mean, so it's something I think I've learned from reading um, Jürgen Moltmann, the German theologian's work on, on this. He makes a very strong connection between the two, so kind of saying that that actually the cross is the foundation of the, of the doctrine of the, of the Trinity because actually what happens on the cross, it's a profoundly Trinitarian event where it's not just sort of Jesus dying and suffering and the Father and the Spirit being unconcerned and, and, and not involved in any way in, this, in this, this event. But in fact what's happening is that, that actually the, the Father allows the Son to sacrifice himself through the Spirit. There's a sense of which, which you know, each of the persons of the Trinity are involved in the suffering of the cross and the, 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 the father, um, uh, if you like, losing his son. There's that profound experience of, of, of bereavement at, at, at that point. There's the son obviously suffering um, distance from the father, suffering the sins of, of the world. And maybe even the spirit suffering the, the, the strain of, of the, you know, what we're talking about, of holding, holding it together. And, and I suppose in, in particular there's a, um, there's, a, there's a phrase I think Maltman uses where he talks about the... the the Father and the Son are separated in forsakenness and one in their surrender. Um, Say that again. <laughs> separated in their forsakenness, but one in their surrender. Okay. The idea being that actually there is a, you know, even deeper than the kind of separation that's been affected by the cross is the sense that both Father and Son are together in, the, in their desire that this is necessary, this should happen, this sacrifice has to be made for the sins of the world. Um, and so, you know, back to your point at the beginning, that 
okay, this this the cross brings in a um, you know dissonance and distance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it doesn't finally break right. the unity of will yes. that there is within the heart of God. Nor is it an experience that changes God. Yeah. Is it? So it must, in some sense, be part of what we want to say about God's nature from all time, that God's nature can and does expand to include his sinful creation. That's what he made us for, to be part of his life. Um, And so that is part of our definition of God. So this, whatever happens on the cross, may for us be a moment when we see most clearly um, how three and one makes sense um, in in the speech about God. But it doesn't actually change. Sure, yeah. God is not a different God as a result yeah. of what he experiences yeah. on the This represents something that is always true of God. Yeah, I think the Trinity connection with the cross is, is, is crucial. Well, <laughs> <laughs> very important. <laughs> um, because uh, otherwise, you know, if you don't have the Son being part of the Trinity, being divine, mm-hmm. then you, you end up with you know, angry God punishing yeah. an yeah. innocent human being. Sure. Yeah. And the whole thing becomes distinctly immoral and unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to God ab- absorbing yeah. our pain, our sin, our yeah. rebellion, yeah. somehow into yeah. himself, into the obedience of the Son. And God himself reconciling the world. God himself, this is God doing it, sure. not him inflicting it on. Yeah. Which means that for us, even in our sin and our death, we know that we are not... We don't have to be separated from God. Yeah. Yes. God's love can reach yeah. us sure. in our most severe separation from yeah. God. In our severe separation from God, in, in the senses in which we mm. feel the whole thing is flying apart mm. and breaking up and falling mm. apart. Yeah. Um, this is the bit that holds. Yeah. This is where it's held. This is and even in those moments when God seems entirely absent. I mean, that's, the, that's, the, that's the amazing thing about the cross in a way. That, you, know, you, you, can't, you can't imagine a picture of the absence of God more vivid than the cross because the cross tells you that you know, here is this the best person who has ever lived and what happens at the end of his life he's abandoned he's not mm. rescued he's just abandoned mm. to this awful fate if ever there was an argument for atheism it was the cross it seems to me um, but the, I guess the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that that you know, in some in, in this mysterious way that was you know in, in, invisible to just human human eyes this is actually God himself suffering on the cross God is present mm. there and again that, again, that says, says something very powerful I think to, to our experiences of forsakenness mm. by other people by, by God that even though it, it feels to us like we are completely abandoned um, that isn't necessarily the best guide to what the reality is mm. and so it's by looking at the cross particularly in the light of the resurrection and in the light of the doctrine of the Trinity we're able to say even in those experiences of, com- of complete forsakenness where we feel forsaken by God that, that we're not actually that God is still there yeah. and that even at times and places when we cannot make any movement mm. at all towards God mm. God has made the movement towards us yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, and I think that's certainly my experience is that the periods when I felt completely kind of that God was absent and, and that there was None, no experience of, of his love or his presence or his comfort or peace or anything are times that I look back and see that he was profoundly at work yeah. um, I can't say he's more at work here than elsewhere yeah. but it felt that way yeah. <laughs> well, it, not at the time but, yeah. it, but looking back it, sure. it, it that, seemed yeah. that way it's that big theme of the, the hidden God isn't it which is a quite a very interesting theme mm. maybe that's for another God pub one day but yeah. 
I first heard anything to talk about. And we hope and trust that that doesn't apply just to our personal experience, but actually to the world's experience yeah. as well. When you look at yeah. areas in the world where it's very, very hard to see the activity mm. of God, mm. we still, as Christians, can hope and pray and trust that actually God is active there. Mm, yeah. mm. Good. Well, we've had a bit of a count around that. hope that helps. In some it's a really interesting question. It's a very interesting, interesting question. question. So, um... So yeah, I mean, it just in, in, in quick answer, can Jesus have died and been separated from God at the same time God still exists and remain God during that period? Answer yes. Answer yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Next>. a rather, rather <laughs> yes, a long-winded way of saying it. But we're theologians, what do you expect? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, yes, I, actually, you talk about existence and so on. I have a, I have a little joke, which um, it's a rather philosophical joke, actually, which you may or may not get. Huh. <laughs> Um, I thought you were a philosophical joke. <laughs> <laughs> probably, uh, I'm a philosophical joke. Um, yeah, it, it kind of goes like this. Um, Rene Descartes, okay? <coughs> Rene Descartes. 17th mm-hmm. um, um, century philosopher. Indeed. Uh, French guy. Um, goes into Starbucks and uh, <laughs> says, I'd like a cappuccino, please. It's a historical joke as well. It's an anachronistic joke. <laughs> Starbucks has a long history. Uh, Starbucks in Paris, it had to be. So yeah, I'd like a cappuccino, please. And the guy behind the counter says, um, I'm, I'm really sorry, Mr. Descartes, but our, uh, our cappuccino machine isn't, isn't working today. Uh, would you like a latte instead? And he says, um, hmm, I think not, and disappears. <laughs> well, he would, wouldn't yes. be. Yes. Well, on exactly. Day, that's he right. Would on that's the test. Do, do, we, do we get this joke? This is quite early in the morning for philosophical jokes. Mike, explain this philosophical joke for us. Well, of course, the thing about René Descartes, as you will know from the Monty Python philosopher's song... Uh, Sing it for us, Mike. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on, go on. No, I think we'll get the censor uh, <laughs> attacking the Godfather if, um, if, if I did that. Um, but his great catchphrase was, um, I think, therefore I am. He was trying to find out the one thing that makes you sure of your own existence, and he suggested it was because uh, that he was aware of his own thinking, and therefore he must exist in order to think. Uh, I think therefore I am. So if he thinks not, if he doesn't think, then he ceases to exist and Absolutely disappears. Right. Well done. Intelligent thing, rather, Mike. Well, you know, I have my moments. I thought that the punchline was going to be that if he didn't get a latte, then he couldn't exist. I mean, that would be something I could emphasize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a question about prayer. So the answer, this question is this. Um, uh, can we pray for people that have died or events that have passed? And the analogy uses that of a parade. God is in the stands, and before him he can see the beginning of the parade and the end of the parade. If Johnny, who's towards the end of the parade, prays for Susie, who's towards the beginning section of the parade... Can God then answer Johnny's prayer by reaching into Susie's life while she is still alive because he is outside of time? Um, particular prayer mentioned was a salvation prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that Susie came to know you as Lord and Saviour before she died. Um, this has obviously been a, been a major um, question in the accounts department of this particular person who's uh, um, asked the question. And um, their tentative conclusion was, no, we cannot pray for people who've died, uh, or people who in the past... Um, but without any firm reason, why not? Um, other than dead people equals scary equals not our business. <laughs> so can, yeah, can we pray for things that have happened in the past or not? What do you think? 
It sounds a really good accounts department. Can we all come and work there? That's great, isn't it? Terribly right. impressed. Sure get much work done. I guess that's why I've not been paid yet. Because <laughs> <laughs> they spent the whole time discussing this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm sure I'm you're happy my, about that, Mike. <laughs> my national insurance number and my, uh, all that kind of thing. And there is performance-related pay, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you got We're something. You to perform. <laughs> <laughs> I think the simple answer to that is that you can pray for anything. That praying is a good instinct under all circumstances. The question is, will it, will it make any difference? Um, and for that, let us go over to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See if I can earn something this week. Um, it's, it's a question that raises a whole lot of other questions, doesn't it? It raises the question of, of what is time and how does time work? Um, and is God outside completely, completely outside time? Um, or is he in all time frames or, or what's going on there? Uh, and it also raises the particular issue that's been an issue within kind of um, Roman Catholic Protestant disputes of, of whether we should pray for the dead. And that's particularly based upon um, the doctrine of purgatory and whether, you know, praying for people is about getting them off time off purgatory and that kind of thing. So it raises a whole lot of... Um, and the wider question of what we think prayer does. And the wider question of what we think prayer does. Um, so, I mean, I agree with, with, with you, Jane, that, that the instinct to pray is, is the right one, it seems to me. Um, it's a matter of what you understand is, is happening in mm. that process. And, and now, I personally don't believe in purgatory as a kind of drawn-out time. I think I believe in purgation. I believe that when we die, we need to be transformed before we can enter in a new creation without ruining it. Um, and that that's what the doctrine of purgatory is, is about. It's about saying we need to be transformed. But Paul talks about that being in the twinkling of an eye. Um, so I don't think of it as an extended thing. And therefore, I don't think when you're praying for somebody, you're praying to get them off purgatory. But I do think it's a good thing to do. I think holding somebody you love before God uh, and uh, inviting him to bless them in whatever way is appropriate but is, is the, a good thing to do. I guess the, the main thrust of the question seems to be not, I mean, maybe about purgatory and praying for people mm. who've died, but it may be mainly about you know, there's, there's times when you, you, know, you say to someone, oh, I'll pray for you because they're going to a job interview or something. And then by the end of that day, you suddenly remember, oh, gosh, they've done it. And I forgot to pray, you know. And then you think, well, maybe I'll just pray now and maybe it'll work, you know, just, just praying, and praying backwards. Now, I suppose the question is, does that, is there any point in that? Is it going to make any difference? Is it worth doing at that point? Um, well, we all do it, don't we? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, a bit, a bit like the accounts department. I think they obviously feel there's an instinct to do this, this yes. right, but wonder don't, don't think they can't find a firm reason why it's. Mostly, I think if if one wants to pray for things um, that have happened in the past, it's because they are still affecting you. This person that asked you to pray hmm. trusted in you, had a relationship with you. Hmm some kind that, that, that and I think to, if you think at the end of the day bother I forgot to pray and, and do it now you also are committing yourself to trying to remember next time the person asks you to pray to do it in time mm -hmm. so, so insofar as that prayer is about changing yourself and your commitment to another member of the Christian family through the Holy Spirit in Christ mm -hmm. then I, I think that is definitely worth doing mm -hmm. whether it will have an effect on their job application um, well, who knows, really? I don't see that it couldn't, given that God, if he has foreknowledge, can take mm. into account things, future events. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on praying you know, for the repose of the soul of Genghis Khan, no. uh, particularly, <laughs> um, or Vlad the Impaler or something. But um, a much-loved 
grandparents, say, who um, and you don't know if they came to Christian faith, but mm. they profoundly affected your life, mm. then you're praying in love for somebody that God has given you. Mm. Um, and I, I can't see any problem with that. I suppose I'm just thinking of the, the, you know, praying for the job interview, or praying for the thing that's passed, that's actually now happened. Um, I suppose if we think that, that in some way God invites us to to work with him in his ongoing interaction with the world, his ongoing creation of the world, even through prayer, that God has in some way limited himself to, to, to cooperating with us through prayer, and that prayer is, is, is our way of or one of our ways of cooperating with God in the continuing <coughs> development and, and recreation of the world, then, then maybe that, that does suggest that even prayers after the event can be somehow used by God in that ongoing work of his. What would worry me would be if the person that you forgot to pray for came back the next day and said, I didn't get the job and it's your fault because you didn't pray. That's right. afterwards. And although that's a, that's a trivial point, there are more profound yeah. points, aren't there, about prayer, that, that I think all of us have had um, devastating experiences mm. of praying, say, for healing, yeah. where our prayer has not been answered or the answer has been no. And, and the feeling that that was in some sense our fault mm. Think is a deeply spiritually unhelpful yeah. thing, yeah. Um, uh, and can make you feel that you know if you the louder you are, the more chance there is that God will do what you want Him to do. Are we trying to make yes. God do something that He otherwise wouldn't want to do yeah. in praying? Yeah. yeah, but we might be cooperating with Him in such a way as to enable something to happen that He wants to happen, but which wouldn't have happened if we hadn't cooperated. There's a sense in which God limits himself to working with us. I mean, you know, with the feeding of the 5,000, he doesn't magic loaves and fishes. He takes what he's given and works out of proportion with what he's given. Um, What would have happened if nobody had offered their, their packed lunch? Would anybody have got fed? Um, well, that's one of those really interesting questions all through the biblical narrative, isn't it? I mean, um, what if Mary had said no? Um, mm. Do we know that God didn't ask lots of other people before Mary? And Mary was the one who said yes. I mean, <laughs> really I, scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, it's a, I, I think the serious point is that what happens to people who don't cooperate with God is that they're not part of God's story with the world Mm -hmm. and if God's story with the world is actually the story of the reality of the world then they're not part of reality or not as part of it as they could Um, maybe we can say that that what maybe God would have found other people through which to do his his work but he will always do it he tends to do it through people doesn't he I mean he does he does work directly within in, in, in the world but most often his way seems to be to do it through people, through yes. people whose wills are in tune with his and people who are in communion with him through prayer and through faith. I guess, isn't and, that that right? da- and therefore yeah. the praying, what the praying does is it changes us and our relationships and the community that we're in by opening us up to God. Uh-huh. But it doesn't change God's mind or God's ultimate purposes, does it? It doesn't mm. change his purposes because they're always loving and perfect and you can't very easily change something perfect but but I think it does possibly uh, do something to his operational scope as I say if he has committed himself to working primarily through human beings and with in cooperation with them then there may be things that he can do when they cooperate that he can't do 
if they don't. Mm. Now, I know that carries other dangers. Given um, that we were just talking about the cross being a symbol of the fact that God is everywhere, even when we can't perceive him at work, um, I think we need to tie true. up. That's true, but nevertheless, it, it, was, it was when where we couldn't see him at work in our own lives and in our own stories and in our own uh, hearts and... and it wasn't a bypassing of who we were. It was a profound but mysterious and painful working within us, in a sense that we were talking about. Later. It was a way of achieving God's purposes with which we um, didn't think we were cooperating. Yes. Right. Um, and yet, you know, despite the fact that everybody around Jesus thought they were rejecting Jesus' vision of God, um, it, God still makes the cross the most yes. profound possible vision. Of God. Maybe it's that, that that actually, as we as we pray, um, and God responds to our prayer, which I believe He does. Um, that the, the particular way in which God works out His interaction with the world, His continuing creation of the world, the way He He um, He does that actually is in some way conditioned and, and determined not totally determined by by our prayer. So if you like, you can say that the, the, the end goal of God's purposes will happen. Whatever happens, God will win the victory. There's nothing that can stop that, even if I and even the rest of the world stops praying. Um, God will, will win the victory. But the precise shape that that takes and um, the role that I and other people have in it is actually shaped by by prayer and, and by my involvement, engagement with it through, yes. through prayer. And, and that... that the process of getting to that victory could be a lot more drawn out and a lot more yep. painful yep. if we don't cooperate. Hence the prayer, come quickly, mm-hmm. Lord yep. Jesus. Yep. Uh, there's a sense in which our prayer yep. hastens mm-hmm. the coming of the kingdom. Nothing can stop it, nothing can thwart yep. it, nothing can prevent it. Mm-hmm. But it could be a long more, lot more drawn out and tortuous and painful and tragic if we don't cooperate than it would be and if we, we do. And we won't have the joy of cooperating. And we God. won't have the joy of yeah. cooperating. I, mean, God, I, would, I want yeah. to say two sort of very practical things about it, about it. One is that we pray because we're told to. Yes. God asks us to do it. It's not a lot to ask. So. Yes. And the other is don't pray if you're not prepared to be changed. Mm. I think prayer is not something um, that, that we can do uninvolved. Mm. So if you're going to start talking to God and being talked through by God or worked through by God, then it will change you. So, if you, mm. you know, a health warning on prayer: don't yeah. do it if you're not prepared to be changed. I think just I don't know, we also just before we just before, I mean, it's, it's, well, it seems to me that um, the instinct of, of the question here, you know, uh, they said that you couldn't see any re- reason why not to pray for things in the past, other than did people equal scary equals not our business. I think the question of what is our business in prayer is mm. actually quite a, a, a key one here. Mm. Um, after all, the Good Samaritan is about doing what you can for the person God puts in your way. Yeah. And prayer mm. is about praying for the people God puts on, in our way, puts on our hearts, brings to our attention. Mm. Uh, that's why, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time praying for the soul of Genghis Khan. Um, but I might for my mother or father, you know, because they're on my heart, they're part of who I am. And uh, it seems to me, to use their analogy, we're responsible for our bit of the parade, primarily. Mm. Uh, what happens to other bits of the parade, well, God can deal with that good thank you okay great well one last thing before we, get, we go this from this time um, we normally have a little element of this God pod thing called um, weird religious stuff and um, today we have one small thing which is um, very small thing which I came across recently called uh, 
Charlie the Hamster Evangelistic Ministry. And um, this apparently is, is about, Charlie is a, it says this, Charlie is a Christ-loving, Bible-believing hamster um, whom God has blessed abundantly with the gift of music and song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Does he sing the philosopher's song from Monty Both? <laughs> and if so, can we have him on Not the program? As <laughs> <laughs> Not as well as you, Mike. So, um, so Charlie, yeah, apparently this, the statement of faith of Charlie the Hamster Evangelistic Ministry is the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of hamsters in that. Um, it also says, while Charlie the Hamster's songs are easily mocked and often ridiculed by smug sophisticates and self-impressed het cats. Surely not. Which, as he describes <laughs> us. I'm sure the het cats have other right. Anyone who approaches this material with childlike innocence will reap eternal rewards. Now, I, I, kind of, I, was, I was looking through this, this, this thing the other day and I couldn't quite work out whether this is a complete wind-up or not. The, bit, the, 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 the slight giveaway, I think, is um, amongst the, the kind of board of trustees of Charlie the Hamster Evangelistic Ministries, who include um, Barney the Bear, <laughs> Finley the Fish, <laughs> Woody Woodpecker. Do you think the Charities Commission might balk at that? I don't know, I some Christians might. will get absolutely anybody else to do their evangelistic work, won't they, rather than do it themselves. <laughs> so come on, Charlie the Hamster. <laughs> so I'm sure it's a very, very good thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think we're done now. And um, so, thank you, Mike. And, and, and Charlie, yeah. the and Charlie Hamster. And yes. Dan Jane, too. <laughs> and we will... Um, they can't see a nod on oh, the radio, <laughs> Jim. <no, they laughs> I nodded. <laughs> and a great a, pleasure very, to be here. A very nice <laughs> nod and a very nice smile, but <laughs> yes, wasted nice on smile. the Godfather audience. <laughs> <laughs> All right, goodbye. <laughs>